0: Easter is one of those interesting things uh, that we as preachers get to deal with because it comes every year and everybody pretty much comes expecting the same message. And you're like, how do you talk about it in a different way without changing anything that still makes us want to listen and, and dial in? And I want to just start with a question, and a question that if someone were to ask you, how you would really answer it. The question is, what is Easter? Is it a, is it a holiday? Is it an event? Is it a celebration? Is it uh, just the time to gather around with your family and hunt eggs and have a good time and eat some good food? Uh, Apparently, we discovered that one day out of the year rabbits lay eggs. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know how we got there. I'm sure there's a pretty good historical answer there. Uh, But, yeah, Easter, event, holiday, time for family, celebration. And it is. It really is all those things. We, We do all those things on Easter. But I want you to consider something. That today... Over 2 billion people, 2 billion with a B, all over the world will gather in some form or fashion to celebrate, to honor, and to give reverence to this day. This day. Why does it hold so much significance? I mean, it really is the defining moment for Christianity. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, hey, if there be if Christ be not resurrected, that so there's no resurrection, then all of our preaching and all of our faith is useless. If Christ is not resurrected, all of this preaching we're doing doesn't mean anything, and all the faith that we're exercising doesn't mean anything either. There's no resurrection, there is no Christianity, and we're not here right now. It's a defining moment for humanity because of the implications of Easter. But more than that, I think it's, it's more than just a singular moment, because I think if we're not careful, we'll leave it in the annals of history and say, oh, that was a great event. Oh, that was a great moment. Without recognizing that Easter isn't stuck in history, it's it's present, it's active, it's available, it has implications for for you and I here today and for every human being on the planet. And more than being a moment, I would just submit to you this afternoon that that Easter is really a journey. It's a three-day journey. Easter doesn't begin on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. It begins on Good Friday, goes into Holy Saturday, and then concludes Resurrection Sunday. But it's this three-day journey that really, I think, is is a a metaphor for our lives because we are all on a journey. We're on a journey to God, a journey with God, a journey from God, uh, a journey where God is, is reaching out to us. And it's on this journey revealed in Easter that we will all walk. We'll all go on the journey. And I think as celebratory and wonderful, and, and awe-inspiring as Easter is, it's also difficult and disorientating. And you say, well, how can we really say that? I think if you look back in Scripture and you see the first followers of Jesus, they were pretty disoriented and felt the, very, the difficulty of Easter. None of them were waiting for it. None of them were like looking for Jesus to be resurrected. Now, he told him he would. He told them that in order to be victorious, he would have to die. But nobody in that time, or nor really do we, have a category for resurrection. I mean, we're not walking around looking at people who we know are going to die saying, in three days they're going to be resurrected because they told me. Someone tells you that, and you say, yeah, right. No, you're going to die and you're going to stay dead. Whereas you have Jesus who's saying, I will die, not only will I, I must die, it's part of my calling, but then in three days I will bodily resurrect, not spiritually, bodily Resurrect. The first followers of Jesus were not looking for that. So when he died and he went in the grave, so did their hope, so did their belief, so did their aspirations. Everything died that moment with Jesus. And we see it because the day, Resurrection Sunday, where are Jesus' disciples? They're in a house hiding. The only people that went to the grave were who? The ladies right? Come on, give yourself a hand. The men couldn't handle it. The women went there to deal with the fact that Jesus was dead and is the angel that appears to them. And here's what I love about these first women. They believe the angels and they go back and get the Say, Why are you hiding in the house? He's risen. He's resurrected. They're like, no, someone stole his body. No, no, no. He has risen. And then they go see for themselves. But they're disorientated. They're devastated. They're hopeless. And we find in Luke 24, starting in verse 13, a conversation that Jesus has on Resurrection Sunday with two of his followers. These two guys, one of them is named Cleopas. They had been in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. Jesus enters the celebration riding on a donkey. People are worshiping and praising him, and then it concludes with them killing him. And they're devastated, disoriented, dealing with pain, suffering, and loss of the one that they loved, the one that they hoped for. And Jesus has a conversation with them. They're on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And I, as we read this, I want you to see, maybe enter into the mindset of what it meant to be a Christ follower on that first Easter. There wasn't a lot of celebration yet. And as we read this, I just want you to listen to the words that they say and how Jesus interacts with them. So that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. They, they didn't recognize it was Jesus. And he asked them, Why are you dis- what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened here- there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. But then some of the women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early in the morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Notice they didn't say whether or not they believed it. But then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But by this time they were nearing Emmaus, and at the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him to stay. They said, since it is getting late, please stay the night with us. And so he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? So here they are, as we've said, Easter Sunday, the Messiah the one who would rescue them. See, they believed that Jesus would set them free, the nation of Israel, from the occupation of the Roman Empire. That's what they were waiting for. They were looking for a victorious king, a victorious savior. They had no category, no concept for a king or a savior who would die and who would suffer, even though he told them that was not in their, in their mind. They had no category to understand that. And so when that happens, they leave. And as I said, they leave all their hopes, all their aspiration, all their belief. Let's say they've been following Jesus for his entire ministry, which was three and a half years, or even just a year. But all of that was crucified on the cross with Jesus, and he's dead. And they begin this journey. And it is on this journey that Jesus began, He joins them, and he has a conversation with them. What I look at when I see this is I see this three-day journey of Easter beginning to unfold, and it's really our journey. As I said, Easter doesn't begin on Resurrection Sunday. It begins on Good Friday. And Friday is pain, suffering, and loss. Now, here's the thing about the Scriptures. The Bible is very honest about life, very honest about humanity, The one thing the Bible doesn't tell us is it doesn't say that we will never suffer or never have pain or never have loss. In In fact, it reveals it. And on Good Friday, we have the pain, the suffering, and the loss experienced by the disciples and Jesus' followers as they look at him. And in this journey, we find the followers of Jesus suffering that too. Their journey began after Jesus' journey. They are journeying home dealing with the pain, the suffering, and the loss of Jesus, of their future, of their people, and everything they put their hope in. But what I find so incredible is that Jesus joins them on their journey, that he becomes present with them in the moment of their pain, their suffering, and their loss. Here's what we want to do on Easter we want to rush to the resurrection which is good. We should celebrate it. But if we rush to the resurrection and we forget about Saturday and we forget about Friday, what we realize is if, if we want a resurrection, we have to realize there was a death. And when we realize there was a death, we realize that there's pain, suffering, and loss. I wish I could tell you that your life will be great from this point forward and you'll never suffer, you'll never have pain, and you'll never have loss. But that's not the truth, and I'd be lying to you. But what we do see here is something incredible, is that Jesus becomes present. And I think what we learn and what Easter is telling us, not that suffering, pain, and loss will cease to exist on this earth, but there is a God in heaven who came down to this earth and became present in the midst of suffering, pain, and loss. That the God that we preach about is not distant from or insensitive to pain, suffering, and loss. He is not only acquainted with it, he not only observed it, he enters into it and he suffers with and for you and I. That's what Easter is saying. We have a suffering Savior. Easter is not as much of a solution as it is about a person. See, solutions are good, but solutions are cold and distant. People are present. A few years ago... I, I, I was called upon to go to a hospice center for a young man who was dying of cancer, probably 19 years old. And me and another pastor were going, and I, I, I literally had no idea what to do. Like, I, I don't know about you, but put me in that moment, and I'm like, still, what do you say? What do you do? How do you, how do you begin to bring help and comfort? And I, I talked to a mentor of mine, and I said, hey, I, I, I don't want to go, number one. I mean, I want to help, but I don't, want, I don't know what to do. What do you say? He said, Josh, don't, don't say anything. He said, as a matter of fact, the moment you think you have something good to say, just keep your mouth shut because it's probably not going to be that good. And number two, there's nothing that you can say that's going to fix the situation. And then he said something that forever just stuck with me. He said, but Josh, never underestimate the power of your presence. They will not remember what you say. They may not remember what you do but they always will remember that you were there. And I kind of begin to see in that, that's how God works with us. And so often we underestimate the power of his presence and we want answers and he gives his presence. His presence precedes answers. Because I guarantee you any answer that he gave you intellectually may satisfy you, but emotionally and spiritually would not bring you to where you need to be. He gives the gift of himself. He comes along with these men who are walking, and instead of berating them, instead of telling them how wrong they are, and instead of telling them that they shouldn't be suffering, they shouldn't have pain, he walks with them and he listens to them and he hears them and he validates them, and then he begins to tell them about himself. He's with us, even if we don't recognize that he's with us. He is present in our suffering, present in our pain present in our loss. He's there. That's why the Bible says he is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. That's what Easter is saying. And as we we look at that, then we, we come to Saturday. And Saturday seems to be a little bit more difficult than Friday. As much as we want to be over here in resurrection, we may find ourselves on Friday or Saturday kind of as an outsider looking in. We come to Saturday and we realize there's, there's death. And, and we all may want a resurrection, but we, we, we forget that in order for there to be a resurrection, there, there has to be a death. And we really have no category for death. And we may not just need a physical resurrection, like our bodies being resurrected, but we may need a resurrection of our, of our marriage, of our finances, with our families, with our friends, in our physical bodies, in our jobs. We may be going through something where we need new life, we need new resurrection, but what we don't really have a category for is death, and that death seems to be part of the process. About four years ago, my grandfather died Approaching that situation, we knew he was going to pass away. I, I, I had never dealt with death on that personal of a level. I didn't quite know how to, how to reach out and touch it or how to talk about it or how to really manage death. And I remember talking to a few people and they tried to help, but the, the only thing that really helped me experience it and, and, and begin to process it was actually going through it. And what I discovered was this, the presence of God in death. Now, my grandfather was a pastor, and so he just pastored us through his whole death, and it was pretty amazing. And I remember as he died, feeling the the loss, feeling the grief, yet on the other hand, feeling the the comfort and the presence of God, and it didn't quite fit my, my brain, because the reality is, is you and I were never created to die. Death wasn't part of God's plan for humanity. That's a result of sin. Sin brought in death. And we know... That death affected Jesus because when he was on this earth, when his best friend Lazarus died, he sat at his tomb and he wept bitterly. Now, he, he resurrected him just a few moments later, but he wept bitterly. Why? I think two reasons in particular. Number one, he was a human and he felt the grief and the pain and the loss of Lazarus. And number two, he was angry at the fact of death being present in the earth. I think what we, we see here is, again, God is not an observer of death. God is not on the outside looking in, but he became a participant in death, in the loss, but also in himself. He said the ultimate reality or solution to death is for me to die. Again, doesn't fit our category of a suffering savior, of, what a, of maybe what a victorious king would be. See, the pain, loss, and suffering is disorientating. The difficulty here is that God would say, in order for victory to happen, death must happen. Like, I don't automatically think if I'm going to be victorious, then I've got to die. But the reality is, is that if I want a resurrection in my marriage, my finances, my, my job, my physical body, whatever the case may be, there's probably going to have, have to be something I die to, or I let something die. I can't just get what I want by keep doing what I'm doing. Something's going to have to die, and I'm going to have to allow something to die. Like maybe in your marriage, what needs to die for reconciliation to happen is you just got to stop being so mean or controlling or having to be right or insensitive. You got to die to something. Maybe if it's your finances, it's not that you need more money. You got to die to the fact that you spend too much money and you spend more money than what you have. Maybe if it's in your family, there's something that has to die. Maybe it's in your physical body. Yes, you can take medicine. Yes, you can get a surgery. But maybe you got to die to the fact that I need to set this cheeseburger aside. I need not eat so much ice cream. I need to get up and move. Right? i got to die to something for this new life to arise. How many of you love the leaves in, in fall? Yeah, they're beautiful. But guess what? They're dying. They're green before the fall. They turn beautiful colors in the fall because life has stopped flowing to the leaves. When they're green, they're full of life. When they're red and orange and yellow, life is being sucked from them, and that color is revealed. There's a beauty in death. And then that tree, that leaf will fall from that tree. It will hit the ground. It'll start to decompose. It'll become nutrient-rich, get into the soil, and new life will grow out of that. So maybe, just maybe, in the process of death and in the complexity of the universe, God has taken death and turned it into life on a continual scale. And he's saying, if you want to be victorious, you've got to die. And if we want to defeat death, we have to die. Death, to us, apart from Christ, is the final word. But within Christianity, we have this belief that death is not the final word. My grandfather looked at us and said, hey, this is not goodbye. This is just see you later. Yeah, and then you're like, well, is that, is that really true? Or is that just some cute phrase that we, we've, we've produced to help us deal with death? And this is the thing that Christians have, this amazing thing, is because we, we really believe that death isn't the final word. We really believe this is not goodbye. This is just, I'll see you later, that one day we have a hope that we will spend eternity with Jesus, with God the Father, and we will see those who have passed again. Because of what Jesus did on Saturday. I don't get Resurrection Sunday without Holy Saturday. My question would be to you this morning is this. Can you trust that in the death, new life will come? And on an eternal perspective, when God says you have to die, what has to die? It's our pride. It's our belief that we can be self-sufficient and self-sustaining. It's our belief that we don't need God, that we are as gods unto ourselves, that we get to define right and wrong. We get to define bad and good, that we are just a product of time plus chance plus matter. No, it is a dying to self and recognizing that we are products of a creator who loves us and who has ultimate authority in our lives. It is a dying to the fact that I don't know everything and my ways aren't always right and a submitting to the authority and the sovereignty of a divine creator. That's why we have baptism. Baptism is this, I go down with Jesus and I come back up with him and I give him my life and he gives me his life. I die to my life, my way, my thoughts, and I receive His, which was always the original intent, but it's in death. That's why Jesus says, I had to go down before I came up. And then that pushes us over here to new life, Sunday. Sunday's new life. Sunday is why we celebrate. Sunday is why we give honor and respect and awe, but Sunday is not separate from Saturday. And Saturday does not come without Friday. And the only way to go through this journey is this way. And all the while, he's saying, I am present. I am with you. And the thing we realize about Easter, and we see it in this story, is that Easter is not really about you and me. And a matter of fact, the Bible isn't about humanity. As a matter of fact, Easter is all about Jesus. Because when he starts to talk to them, he says, you don't believe or you have forgotten what the prophets have said. And he goes all the way back to the beginning, and he reveals himself. Hey, Jesus, it's Jesus saying, I am here. This is me. That was me. That was me. That was about me. That too was about me. Matter of fact, it's all about me. And that's what Easter is. Jesus revealing himself in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. The pain, the suffering, the loss. Hey, I'm here. Whether you see me or not, I'm revealing myself to you. In death, hey, I'm here. I'm not distant. I'm not just observing. I'm present present in it, revealing myself into new life. Now, here's the thing, though. I said Easter was difficult, and you want to know why I believe it's difficult? Because God doesn't answer some of the questions that I want him to answer about life. As wonderful as Easter is, here's the difficulty. He didn't tell me why, and he didn't tell me how. Why what? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to have pain? Why is there loss? Why is there death? Now, I know if you're seasoned and you know a little bit about the Bible, you'll say, well, because of sin. Yeah, I know, but why did He design it that way? God, how, how, how can I avoid it? And as much as I would like to tell you the answers to those questions, I can't because Easter doesn't answer those questions. God doesn't give us the, the you know, philosophical answers to why and to how. He only does one thing, and what he does is he gives us who. He gives us Himself. The Bible is honest. The Bible doesn't say, and Easter doesn't say, that there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no loss, there is no death. The Bible says, yeah, it's there. And, wh- and all of us will be partakers of it and will succumb to it at some point. And what I love, though, is Easter doesn't leave us on Friday. It doesn't leave us on Saturday. It brings us through to Sunday and says, He is with us, and He overcomes it. He is with us in death, and He has overcome it. And He has given us new life. So He gives us Who? That's what the scriptures reveal. Who? I believe that answers may come, but instead of just cold, insensitive, distant answers, he's given us himself. He's given us the remedy to say, you don't have to stay at Friday. You don't have to stay at Saturday. You can come with me to Sunday to new life. I can resurrect your marriage. I want to heal your marriage. I want to help your finances. I want to give you hope in your relationships. I want to heal your physical body. I want to heal your relationships. He's given us himself. But I think all too often we underestimate the power of his presence. When again, Easter is this beautiful revelation of Jesus to us in the midst of whatever it is. There's a young man in our church, his name is Zach. Incredible story, been through a ton in his life. At 15 years old, he received a death sentence from the doctors. And what unfolds over the course of his story is something that is absolutely incredible. And I want you to see how he starts and his mindset and then where he is today. I want you to watch his story.
1: Zach, what, what, when the doctor came in, what did he say to you?
2: The doctor came in and said, I can't treat this. I can't cure this. Proceeded to look over my shoulder. Looked at my parents said, you get his affairs in order. Go on vacation. Remain stress-free. He's only got a few months.
1: Exactly. so you're 15 years old, normal teenager, active life. You go to high school. You are athletic, uh, having fun, looking forward to getting your license and living a pretty normal life, and you have a bit of an accident, right? Someone right. shoots you in the eye with an airsoft pellet, mm-hmm. and you go to the doctor, and the doctor gives you some...
2: Right, well, they give me some good news, but then they also throw in some bad news. Yeah? Yeah, the eye was okay. The eye was okay, but, but right.
1: what was the bad news?
2: bad news is they find a potential mass in my brain. I get the official diagnosis of says this is definitely a brain tumor. It is pressing on your brain stem, it has metastasized on your spine,
1: and you're effectively given a death sentence. Yes. But at 15 years old, what goes through your mind when you hear that?
2: Why me? Hmm. What do I do to deserve this? You know, I'm 15. I haven't even lived life yet, you know? Yeah.
1: Now you're married, you're going to school. And uh, you have a a kind of a crisis
2: moment. So it was one morning before work, and I am, you know, working out. I just had am running about six, seven miles on the cross training machine, and I start to feel a little funky. Hmm. Start to feel a little dizzy. And basically, I go into a full out seizure on the gym floor. They put me in a medically induced coma because okay. I was bleeding on the brain. Actually, the chaplain came to my wife and told her she needs to sign my last rites. She says, no, I'm not signing that. He's been through this before, and he'll get through it. So she refuses? Yes. Basically, they take off my ventilator, and they unplug me from the machines that I'm on.
1: Now, were they doing that because they thought, well, he, we're just going to let let his body, let life kind of right, take Right, let its things
2: course. take its course, because he's in the process of dying, dying. right now.
1: Well, so what happens after they take you off the machines?
2: Well, I wake up. You woke up? I woke up. She called the paramedics, and they came out and determined I was having a brain hemorrhage. So I said, all right, we need to get this guy life flighted to the hospital. And then upon making it to the hospital, they didn't think I was going to make it through the night.
1: When they are telling your wife that he's not going to make it through the flight, he's probably not going to make it through the night. Right. And
2: you make it through the night. I make it through the night. Then they proceeded to tell me that, you know, okay, you had this hemorrhage and this and that, and... You're probably not going to make it out of this hospital bed.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, so obviously, this isn't the first time you've heard that.
2: Right. right. But I made it out of the hospital bed. I made it over to the inpatient rehab unit. So you asked me, what's your goal? I said, I want to walk for graduation. Because when this happened, I was in the middle of my... The middle of the semester of my senior year of my undergrad.
1: Fifteen, you were told you weren't going to live, and you lived. Mm-hmm. And then after your first hemorrhage, hey, you're not going to walk again, and you walked. Third time, you're not going to live, right? not going to live in the life flight. You're not going to live into the night. You're not going to get out of this bed, and here you are getting your degree, which you thought would never happen. Right. Right, walking across mm-hmm. that stage. How would you say this whole experience uh, has impacted your, your view of God, your relationship with God?
2: The whole experience, you know, 15 years ago when I was initially diagnosed, this whole thing has just really made God very real to me. You said this belief in an unseen God yeah. to a knowledge of a real, seen, intangible God.
1: If, uh, if you had the opportunity to talk to someone face-to-face kind of like we are, and they're going through a seemingly hopeless situation, having been what you've been through, what would you say to them?
2: You may feel like you're going to die. You may feel like your marriage is going to fail. You may feel like things aren't going to work out. But Here's the thing. We serve a huge God that's in control of everything and knows the end from the beginning. He makes these promises, and he comes through on them time after time.
1: If you could go back and say, I wouldn't have to have the tumor. I wouldn't have to have the hemorrhages, but I wouldn't know what I know now, would you rewrite your story? Never. Why?
2: It's truly a gift. Hmm. This made me into who I am today.
0: I hope at some point you get the opportunity to talk to Zach. He's an incredibly just an amazing man. I was sitting there across from him listening to his story and I was so humbled and impacted and that last question that I asked and that was totally on the spot. We didn't you know sit and compare answers and I thought Zach would be really great if you said this at the end I asked him that question and just without blinking without thinking he said no I would not rewrite my story it's a gift Zach had to relearn how to walk and he still walks with some difficulty still struggles with the use of one of his hands and he's about ready to get his master's degree and he's going to be a teacher and at the beginning yeah you can clap it's pretty amazing He's not able to physically do what he used to do. And at the beginning, his question was, why me? What have I done to deserve this? Angry at God. Fast forward through Friday, through Saturday, to Sunday, new life. He says, it's a gift. It's who God has created me to be. It's what God has used in my life. He was present in the pain and the suffering and the loss. He was present in the the death and he is present in the new life. That's the journey that we walk. And I'm not saying that your journey is gonna be like Zach's. I hope for many of you it isn't and I know he would hope for that too. But your journey is your journey nonetheless and you've gone through things that to you are paramount and difficult. And I would hope that you would recognize the presence of Jesus in your life never underestimate the power of his presence even if he isn't answering your questions even if he isn't doing for you what you want him to do for you even if you feel disillusioned even if you feel disoriented may you know that he's there and he's given you the gift of himself for the moment that these young men in the story recognized jesus the bible says they got up and they went back seven miles it was in the evening why did they go back seven miles? They went back seven miles to let those ladies know, hey, you were right. And to tell the other disciples, he's risen. He's here. We couldn't see him. But he walked with us. He talked with us. He understood our pain. He broke bread with us. And he's real. He's risen. Like Paul said, if he'd be not risen. Our preaching is useless and our faith is in vain. But he is risen. And therefore, our preaching isn't useless and our faith isn't in vain. What I want to do this morning is I want to pray for you. But would you stand? Would you stand with me this morning? on across cross to the seat afternoon. You can bow your heads. First thing I'm going to pray for is just if you're here today and you would say, you know what, Josh, I don't find myself on Resurrection Sunday. I'm, I'm on Friday or I'm on Saturday and I'm struggling to recognize his presence in my life. I'm going to pray for you. But secondly, I want to ask if you're here this morning or this afternoon and you would say, you know what? I'm, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to follow him. I need to follow him in death first and die to some of my pride, my arrogance, my self-sufficiency, maybe die to my addiction, whatever the case may be. You're trying to run from God or you're trying to do it without God. If that's you here this morning and say, I need a fresh start, I need new life. I just want you to raise your hand all over this place because I want to pray for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Anybody in the balcony? Hey, I need new life this morning. I need Jesus. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And if you raise your hand specifically, I want you to pray with me. It can be out loud. It can be under your breath. Matter of fact, everybody can pray with me. I want you to know there's nothing magic about raising a hand or repeating a prayer. But what you're doing is, is you are declaring who he is and that you need him. You're recognizing and you are estimating his presence and his desire to be in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I recognize I need him. Jesus, I need you. I I will die this afternoon to my pride, my self-sufficiency, my self-righteousness. I need you. So I receive. I receive resurrection life, and I'm a new person, and I'm a new creation. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that just prayed that prayer, that said, today, I want to be a new person. Today, I want to experience new life with Jesus. Lord, I pray for every person here that would say, you know what? They're struggling because they're pain, suffering, loss. They're experiencing death, that they would estimate your presence. They would recognize your presence in their lives. That Jesus, you are with them. You are for them, not against them. You are not distant from. You are not insensitive to. You know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to die. You suffer with and you suffer for. You died with and you died for. But you don't leave us there. You bring us to brand new life. You are resurrected. You are alive. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. We come today to celebrate this resurrection Sunday that you have been resurrected. Our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not useless. So Jesus, we love you and we thank you and we lift your name high this morning and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Now let's worship him for who he is.